Welcome back to the Blockchain Podcast. I'm retired Lieutenant Colonel Bill Stebbins. Welcome back to the podcast that's your cognitive sanctuary, your cerebral massage parlor. We have a lot of things to talk about today, and so let's get started. First of all, what we might do is go to Ukraine, specifically go to Europe. President Vladimir Zelensky, he's making the rounds in Europe, panhandling, asking for more funds, more weapons, always more, more, more. Can't blame him. He's actually receiving quite a bit. Uh, from us, at least, $130 billion in growing. He's making the tour. He's seeking to raise finances to get pledges of more war material in preparation for a rumored, proposed, or purported spring offensive. Um, it looks like uh, the Ukrainians might go on the offensive, the counteroffensive. But it wasn't long ago that on the Michael Savage show, retired Colonel Douglas McGregor had been expressing his viewpoint uh, that Ukraine was actually on the ropes, that Russia, even though suffering pretty steep casualties, uh, that Ukraine was actually suffering much higher casualties, that they were doing much worse. And his opinion was that we were going to see a Russian, a strong Russian offensive. Well, it never materialized. And checking the traps, going back and looking at Colonel McGregor's rationale, he said that the winter was quite mild. And so... Uh, the ground never really froze sufficiently to support a Russian offensive into Ukraine on multiple fronts that really mechanized forces were limited to the roads. And so, you know, again, we sit over here in the United States many miles away and we wonder what is the truth? Who's actually winning? Who's actually losing? Uh, are any of the sides on the verge of culminating, or could this go much longer? Again, I reflect on my many years of teaching tactics and operational art at the Command and General Staff College, and my study of military history led me to believe, as I would teach my students or offer to my students, that warfare is, by and large, it's attrition. How much lead do you have in your pencil sharp, in your pencil? because it's it's much like King Kong has a double-headed pencil sharpener and the belligerents put their pencil in on both ends of the sharpener and King Kong, that King Kong of war just starts grinding both pencils and the victor is not really the side that has incre incredible doctrinal ideas of maneuver etc. It ultimately comes down to who can outlast the other, who has more lead in their pencil before the other is whittled down to nothing. And this seems to be what we're finding in Ukraine, this war between Russia and Ukraine, that both pencils are in King Kong's war pencil sharpener and grinding it is. But we really don't know. It's hard for us to tell who's winning, who's likely to succeed in this very complex, multifaceted conflict. It's been over 14 months, and there's really no end in sight as of yet. 
And so Zelensky is making the rounds, trying to drum up uh, more finances, more war material. Uh, would really love to have jets, fighter jets. And he's stated that he is not interested in peace talks with Putin, that he is not interested. He's going to see this through to the end. And I'm just continue to be struck. I'm struck at how we the people just do not learn from war. We don't learn. We don't learn. We had the War Powers Resolution passed in 1973. Essentially because we might have had an opportunity to learn a little bit of how nations just plunge into war willy-nilly without Congress debating the merits, the necessity of going to war or not. And the Vietnam War is just a tragic tale of how the chief executive, the president of the United States, unilaterally pulls us into a conflict that the nation doesn't want. Now, of course, it's a little bit more complex than that, but essentially it's not. And so in 1973, War Powers Resolution trying to and seeking to limit the power of the president to just thrust the nation into a war. Quoting from Andrew Basevich's book on shedding an obsolete past, he says of the War Powers Resolution that inspired by the disaster of the Vietnam War and intended to constrain presidents from using force without congressional buy-in and support, that particular piece of legislation ranks alongside, alongside the Volstead Act of 1919, which is enacted to enforce prohibition, as among the least effective ever to become law. It's just a farce. It, it, it holds no presidents back. And so, okay, here we are again. Here we are essentially at war with Russia. Now, you can nuance it, you can backpedal, you can try to maintain that it's not a war. It's a, it's a proxy war, certainly, and I would offer it's far more than that. But here we are once again on the cusp of a very hot war between a nuclear superpower and ourselves. And for what? For what? We the people do not learn from war. And anyone that would argue with that, I'd ask them, what was Iraq all about? What was Afghanistan all about? What did they ultimately accomplish? What national good did those two occupations, those two decades of occupying those two nations, what did they yield? How are we in a better place today than we were before invading sovereign Iraq on pretense of weapons of mass destruction, which he did not have. How are we any better off? We essentially gave rise to ISIS in the north of Iraq, and we handed over a treasure trove of weapons and war material in our very embarrassing route from Afghanistan, the, the particular brainchild of General Milley. 
So if we're going to learn anything from war, let's not forget these things. Quoting from David Horowitz's book, The Final Battle, he says that the watchdog group opened the books, places the totals at 75,000 military vehicles, 600,000 weapons, and 208 airplanes abandoned by U.S. forces in all of Afghanistan. What an absolutely pathetic route. What an ignominious defeat. An embarrassing close to two decades of trying to do, of endeavoring to do something good, ostensibly, in Afghanistan. And don't get me wrong, the men and women who served there on behalf of the United States, fine men and women, most of them, tremendous folks, patriotic in a good way, wanting to do something that actually defends this nation. But just because the worker bees, just because the soldiers endeavor to do something good, doesn't make the overall enterprise when it's based upon rotten assumptions, rotten geopolitical motives, it doesn't make it a worthwhile endeavor. And so what did we learn from Iraq and Afghanistan? The answer, we've learned nothing. We the people have learned nothing because we're all fine. And I'm exaggerating. But essentially, we allow yet another administration to hurl us headlong into another conflict. Another conflict that has no direct impact on the security of this United States. And again, for those who would argue with me, please argue with me. Because how are you going to maintain this argument that the border, the sovereignty of Ukraine, must be defended when our southern border is wildly disregarded, criminally disregarded? And you've seen the headlines just this last week. Last week, 3,000 apprehensions a day at the Rio Grande border. On May 8th, it reached a peak of 3,291 apprehensions by Customs and Border Patrol. A number of folks just this last week on the terrorist watch list have been apprehended at the border. And I've mentioned before on this podcast that when I served at the Command and General Staff College for a number of summers, I would go down and teach tactics and operational planning to, to the Customs and Border Patrol agents down in Arizona, also once in Texas. And I can tell you, and they will tell you, that for the apprehensions that they log, most of them get away. And so the numbers are far beyond this far beyond this. Our president and his supporters, to include his rubber-stamping military leaders, reanimate the ghosts of historical slavery for shameless political gain, while hypocritically enabling gender slavery and human sex trafficking to explode on the southern border. But no, if you don't study this, if you don't know Border Patrol agents, if you haven't gone down there, you don't know any of this because it's not spoken of 
You don't know anything about rape trees that occur all throughout the southern border? You know nothing about that. But no, instead, we're given nice patriotic phrases and rationales for supporting the war against Russia. Russia, the great enemy that's threatening a, a, a peace-loving nation that wants to join NATO. Let's spend billions and billions of dollars on defending Ukraine. Let's, let's risk nuclear war for Ukrainian interests. Prioritize Ukrainian border sovereignty over the sovereignty of our national borders. Let's turn a blind eye to the mass narco-poisoning of our citizens. We used false charges, a lie, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and then proceeded to invade his nation. I'm not saying Saddam Hussein was a good person. Not at all. But we invaded him on false charges of WMD, and yet, hypocritically, we have a chemical weapon of mass destruction entering this nation on our porous, neglected, intentionally neglected southern border, and it is a weapon of mass destruction. Fentanyl is being smuggled up by Mexican cartels, aided and abetted by Chinese companies that bring fentanyl precursors into Mexico for then smuggling up into the United States. And it's a weapon of mass destruction. Why do I say that? Fentanyl slaughters 10 times the number of Americans yearly than all of the casualties of Ukraine since Russia invaded. 70,000, more than 70,000 fentanyl overdoses a year in this nation, originating from Mexico, and we turn a blind eye to that. Matter of fact, Mexican cartel-originated fentanyl has been killing over 70,000 Americans each year since 2019, representing each year more casualties than the U.S. suffered in Afghanistan and Iraq combined in the 20 years. How is this not a chemical weapon of mass destruction being used to poison our citizens? And we turn a blind eye to that. So I'm supposed to believe and have no problem siphoning taxpayer money to Ukraine to secure its border when our border is suffering, when our border is allowing this incredible evil to pass through and poison my fellow citizens. And many of you listening to me have suffered from this fentanyl entering our nation. Weapons come in many different forms. The same is true of weapons of mass destruction. You've heard of suitcase nukes, you've heard of biological weapons, etc. Foreign origin and distributed fentanyl, by any logical definition, is a weapon of mass destruction. In fact, the Rain Corporation's exhaustive 2019 study concluded 
that it resulted in greater deaths than the number of addicts and that what is occurring should be viewed more accurately as mass poisoning than the drug epidemic. Fentanyl is up to a hundred times more potent than morphine. Matter of fact, it only takes two milligrams, smaller than what would cover the beard that would cover Lincoln's beard on a penny. It can be a lethal dose, killing its user within two minutes. Fentanyl is a weapon of mass destruction. Mexican cartels aided, abetted, and powered by Chinese state corporations, state businesses, are flooding our nation and have been for years with this incredibly lethal weapon of mass destruction, and we do nothing. No, we don't learn anything about war. We TikTok, we Instagram, we watch Netflix, and we don't realize that we are being destroyed from within. And it is tremendous. It is wonderful, as opposed to the Vietnam War, that citizens really do appreciate the military. I continue to be told now and thanked for my service. I appreciate that. But the tragedy is we can't even count upon our highest military leaders to defend the Constitution, to look after the national interest instead of their own interest, instead of being patsies, obsequious patsies for the political leaders, any inane idea that political leaders have. Matter of fact, in March of this year, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley, they went before the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense in this weekly political theater that they do every year to um, request taxpayer money for their next fiscal year budget, uh, this time $842 billion dollars they requested, which is more, our, our military budget has been more than the next nine countries combined. Think about that for a minute. But during that hearing, uh, the issue of fentanyl on the southern border came up. And the incredible brain trust that gave us absolute failures in Iraq and Afghanistan to include the icing on the top of the cake, the rotten cherry on top of the Sunday of, of Afghanistan. Uh, the Secretary of Defense said, well, that's a law enforcement issue. He sees that as a law enforcement issue. Nothing at all that should concern the military. Well, as a veteran, as a taxpayer, as a proud American, I don't agree with looking at monsters overseas when we're being invaded right on our home turf and turning a blind eye just for political gain, just to feather our own nest. Absolutely unconscionable. And so no, we don't learn from war. The American people don't. But the federal government learns very well. They learn from war incredibly well. They learn how to profit. They learn how to consolidate power. 
They learn how to steal from American taxpayers and misappropriate our hard-earned taxes to enable their globalist agendas and their campaigns halfway around the world. They learn how to pull on the taxpayers' heartstrings to say all the right patriotic phrases to keep you and I footing the bill. Footing the bill for their personal enrichment and footing the bill to further their globalist agendas. And they're not American domestic agendas. As witnessed with the invasion on the southern border, the fentanyl weapon of mass destruction that they let come in year after year after year, will spend millions drone attacking uh, al-Qaeda leaders, different operatives overseas. Uh, you know, this could be done south of the border with great effect. With great effect, but we won't even consider that. We will let the state of Mexico do nothing to rein in their cartels, to rein in their black tar heroin rancho networks. We'll let them do nothing. And that is the definition of a failed state. Mexico is either intentionally not blocking, not degrading, not attacking the cartels, not reining in their power, not doing everything they can to neutralize the criminal elements in their society, or they're unable to do so. And if it's the latter, then they are a failed state. And that's a very dangerous thing to have adjacent to us. But all of our brilliant military theorists and planners out there will have sucked in the Kool-Aid, have sucked in the Kool-Aid about NATO expansion and the importance of NATO. See this as a wonderful chapter in American military history where more countries are brought into the fold of NATO, bringing Russia to its knees. They think this is an amazing thing. And they miss the log in their eyeballs. They, they don't see that we're being destroyed from the southern border. And so I'm looking at the news here and, and I'm seeing migrants in Texas. I'm watching the video right now as we speak, opening up their packets from DHS, Department of Homeland Security, another wonderful federal agency that has grown since the global war on terror. They're opening up their packets and they have an some documents there, and they have a government-provided cell phone. I should say taxpayer-provided cell phone. And they have an app in here, CBP-1. It's a mobile app. And these migrants are released with simply a notice to appear. And, of course, we know that all illegally entering entities south of the border will dutifully appear in court on their dates. We know that they never miss their dates. They start their history in the United States illegally, and of course, then they transform into absolute law-abiding individuals, don't they? Of course. But when are, their, when are their dates? Four to ten years out. Four to ten years out. 
unbelievable. Absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely unbelievable. Don't tell me this administration has your and my best interests at heart. I'm not that illogical. I'm not that idiotic, and neither are you. The name of the game is the accumulation of power and personal enrichment. That's all it is. There's nothing noble about it now. Again, I'd refer you to Iraq and Afghanistan. What were the noble pursuits in those two campaigns, in those two wars, those two occupations? No, foreign operatives have been purchasing access to now President Biden and his crime family for years. I'm looking at the news right now. Hunter Biden is, is in a lot of trouble right now, ostensibly. For sure he'll get off. I'm looking at the New York Post. Today's New York Post. Where it says the House Oversight Committee is in discussions to bring foreign and American prostitutes who allegedly cavorted with Hunter Biden before Congress. The Post has learned. We're going to track down these women and talk to them, and if there is a credible reason that we need to bring them in in front of the Oversight Committee, then absolutely we would do that, especially when it involves our national security, said Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. After much pushback, after a very powerful fight by the Biden family, the committee were permitted to look at documents on Hunter Biden's ill-fated laptop. In the Treasury, they were able to go look at it. They couldn't take pictures of it. They couldn't take copies of any of the documents that they saw. But it said that Comer, the chairman, revealed that Hunter and his family had operated more than 20 LLCs and taken in at least $10 million in foreign money, citing subpoenaed bank records he outlined in a 36-page memo. After a protracted fight, the Biden administration in March finally allowed members of the Oversight Committee to view the more than 150 SAR reports, their suspicious activity reports generated by banks, in response to Hunter Biden's financial transactions. The report says there were more SARs on Burisma, Rosemont Seneca, BHR, the, the Ukrainian energy company, it paid Hunter $83,333 a month to serve on its board while his father was vice president, along with two other companies Hunter was deeply involved in. And the report said that there were SARS from all over the world. A lot were from China. There were some from UAE. There were some from the former Soviet Union countries, African countries. Absolutely unbelievable. As well as just a trove of just really nice pictures of a nude hunter with some very nice ladies taking pictures of them together. You know, this is the, the son that uh, Biden is very proud of. President Biden said he's, his son has done nothing wrong. He's very proud of his son. Uh, you know, there he is. There, you know, he's standing there with a nice young lady. That, matter of fact, it's blocked out, but there, you know, she's standing there with his schmendrick right there by her, by her left elbow. That's a, a, someone to really be proud of. Really nice son there. Um, 
you know, this is the family that failed generals Millie and Austin are so eager to follow. Now, now they didn't fail in the self-enrichment sense. In, in that case, they've done as well as Hunter. They've learned the lessons. They're doing quite well in that regard. No, they failed the nation. They've become the opposite of apolitical. We, we know, we've seen they've failed on the battlefield. They've failed in Iraq. They've failed in Afghanistan. We haven't had any victories in warfare since World War II. So they failed in planning in Afghanistan. The, the withdrawal there was an absolute disaster in a black eye in the history of this nation. But they're very successful. One is now the Secretary of Defense, the other the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. They've done quite well for themselves to this nation's detriment. Let me quote once again from Andrew Basevich's book on shedding an obsolete past. He says that the true costs of Washington's wars go untabulated. In a famous speech, Dating from early in his presidency, Eisenhower said that every gun that was made, every warship launched, every rocket fired, signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those whose hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. Dollars spent on weaponry, I consisted, translated directly into schools, hospitals, homes, highways, and power plants that would go unbuilt. This is not a way of life at all, in any true sense, he continued. It is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. More than six decades later, Americans have long since accommodated themselves to that cross of iron. Many actually see it as a boon, a source of corporate profits, jobs, and of course, campaign contributions. As such, they avert their eyes from the opportunity costs of our never-ending wars. And so no, Austin and Millie are quite happy to serve a president cut from the same bolt as so many of our recent presidents, focusing on globalist agendas, Keynesian economics, recklessly spending taxpayer money overseas on never-ending wars. Again, quoting from Basevich. War empowers Washington. It centralizes. It provides a rationale for federal authorities to accumulate and exercise new powers. It makes government bigger and more intrusive. It lubricates the machinery of waste, fraud, and abuse that causes tens of billions of taxpayer dollars to vanish every year. When it comes to sustaining the swamp, nothing works better than war. Basevich goes on. The Pentagon, arms manufacturers, and their advocates in Congress share an obvious interest in discovering new threats one likely explanation relates to a policy elite increasingly unable to distinguish between self-interest and the national interest. 
This paradigm persists for the sole reason that it ensures that statecraft will remain a realm that resolutely excludes the popular will. Elites decide, while the job of ordinary Americans is to foot the bill. Elites decide, Americans foot the bill, taxpayers foot the bill, and then the military. They do the dirty work. They do the bidding of their political masters. And again, I've spent over two decades serving the military. I know why I joined. I left early. I left prematurely because I didn't like what I was seeing. And I refused to participate it, participate in it any further. And I have a lot of friends, a lot of fabulous, incredible men and women still serving today. But I would ask them to think about why they're serving and what they're serving and to what end. And so the war in Ukraine continues, and we continue to promise and pump taxpayer money. We foot the bill for that war, even while our southern border stays absolutely porous. In the national debt, the last time we talked, it was $31.4 trillion. Well, now it's up to $31.7 trillion. That's $94,000 per citizen. Of course, illegals... Those who are coming across the border, they're not computed into this unvoted, unagreed-upon debt per citizen. No, only the legal citizens, the taxpayers, those who are actually working, will foot the bill. $94,000 per citizen. And growing every day. Every day. Your debt, my debt, but their profit. The elites who govern us, their profit. So the debt ceiling, we talked about that last time. It's looming, but don't give in to the political charade. There is zero possibility that they won't raise the ceiling. They absolutely will. They're Keynesian economists. They don't care how much debt we take on. They will print more. And so there is no danger of the debt ceiling deadline approaching without it being raised. And so, mark my words, you'll see that happen, and the dollar will continue to devalue. And so now I'm looking at Politico. The headline here, Biden dives into debt ceiling talks, causing many panics among his base. Um, It says, President Joe Biden finally feels good about his chances of striking a debt ceiling agreement in time to avert economic catastrophe. Friends, there there is no emergency. They will pass. They will extend the ceiling. Both sides of the aisle, they're in on the take here. They're Keynesian. It's about spending. Limitless fiat currency production. But they're walking a line. They're walking the razor's edge. They're playing with fire that they think they can control. These central planners increasingly think they're the smartest people in the room, and they know how to control this. And one way that 
that we're seeing that they're planning play out. You see something, it looks like a controlled demolition. You see banks failing. Do you think this is random? I'm offering to you that this is planned. Shake consumer trust in smaller regional banks and consolidate financing into the mega banks that exist. Consolidate into the larger few banks that are tied very closely with the federal government and simultaneously roll out CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. And what do you need to know about central bank digital currency? First of all, it's nothing like Bitcoin. They're completely different species of creature. They have nothing in common. Central bank digital currency is the next step in control to move entirely away from a cashless society, to move into a cashless society. CBDC would tie citizens directly to the Fed financially. It would tie them, administered by the mega banks that would be permitted to survive, of course. But your banking would be tied directly to the federal government. Their plan is to consolidate, to digitize, and to control. To run all the smaller banks out of business, but this will be promoted as a public good. The central bank digital currency, they will and have been advertising this as, as a way to bring our, our banking into an era of modern technology. To bring you fully networked, non-siloed digital economy with seamless 24-7 transactions. No more banker hours rapid resolutions of your transactions. Don't believe this garbage for a minute. A cashless society is a completely exposed society. When you go entirely digital through the Fed, your privacy is gone. Your privacy is gone. Anything that you purchase is logged and tracked very closely. Furthermore, it's the, the next logical step in controlling where those in power don't have to legislate. They will unilaterally control what you are able to purchase and what you are not able to purchase. You will lose incredible freedom in this regard. And it's all but inevitable. Multiple nations are already looking at digital currencies from China to the European nations. What you need to realize is that Bitcoin exists outside of federal span of control. It resides in a very safe digital space. Not without some risks, of course. And these are things that are well documented and we'll discuss further in the future, but Bitcoin is not the same thing as CBDC. I would offer that Bitcoin is not cryptocurrency, technically. It's a different, unique thing. 
But when I see government strongly opposed to something, when I see the federal government wildly opposed to, to Bitcoin, that causes me to sit back and wonder why. It, it then gives me interest. I want to know why the federal government is so against Bitcoin. And the answer is very clear. It's something they cannot control. It is a means whereby you can protect your hard-earned wealth from government theft. And I'm not an anarchist. I believe in the role of government. But the quality, the nature of governments exists on a sliding scale. From benevolent, helpful, never perfect, but what we would say good governments that serve their people, to wildly authoritarian, dictatorial governments, which are incredibly evil. And so taxation is a necessary thing, and I'm not against taxation. But I am against destroying the middle class. I am against punitive taxation, legislating by dictatorial fiat, and I think it's immoral to be forced to use a currency, a money that steals from us, that steals value from us, and that steals our privacy, which is what CBDC will do. In that regard, pretty interesting that Florida Governor DeSantis signed a law blocking CBDC from Florida. This is a very encouraging development. And Texas just introduced an anti-CBDC bill. So they're looking at that as well. So there are sanctuaries of common sense where the privacy of the citizen is still respected. And so we'll be watching that very closely. I found a very interesting article on the Mars Review of Books on 16 March. And the article was Rome's, it's called Rome's Fall, A Window into the Roman Empire by Peter Nimitz. And Peter Nimitz speaks of a book written by a historian years and years ago. The book is The History of the Roman Republic. And Momsen described things that led to the fall of the Roman Republic, which are quite interesting. And he says the hollowing out of the middle class, the mass importation of slaves, the destruction of industry, and the rise of great landholders in Hannibal's wake made Republican institutions more brittle. Listen to that again, the hollowing out of the middle class, the mass importation of slaves. Now, technically, all the folks coming up through the southern border, they're not slaves, but they're willing to work for wages far lower than what they should make were they citizens here. It's a de facto slave class that's being permitted into this country. It's unconscionable that we would treat people this way. The next thing, the destruction of industry. 
If you've followed the economy the last several decades, we have absolutely had that occur here, the destruction of industry. And then the rise of great landholders. You might call that the further exponential rise in the ultra-rich. These things all made the Republican institutions more brittle. And you can't but argue that our constitutional ideas, our constitutional concepts, have become much more brittle as well, have been perverted, changed, morphed from the nature in which they were written and conceived. Another very interesting thing that this historian, Momsen, brings out of his prescient research, he says that financiers became mighty political actors from their large operations. And we see that as well, the rise of the mega banks. The financiers became mighty political actors from their large operations. Our government's power undermines our own republic, and in time it will evolve into an empire. Very interesting, and I thought very appropriate. And so what can you do in light of these trends, in light of these things that are occurring? You work hard. Should your wealth be so shamelessly eroded and stolen from you? I would suggest that you become very familiar to even just look into the concept of Bitcoin. And the first thing that I would read that I would recommend is a very important book by Saifedean Amos. The book is called The Bitcoin Standard. It lays out very logically, very clearly what Bitcoin is, the concept behind Bitcoin. I would suggest to you that it's not a fad. It's been around for 14 years, going on its 15th year now. And there are some very bedrock important ideas built into this concept of Bitcoin. And so the Bitcoin standard is the first thing I would read. I would also read a second book called The Fiat Standard, where he explains in great detail our current very brittle, very fragile, very unsustainable fiat monetary system. The second book is called The Fiat Standard, also by Seyfedean Amos. And so you might just learn a little bit about Bitcoin and find out for yourself, explore for yourself why it may represent the last and perhaps the only chance, the only vehicle to protect your hard-earned wealth from unconscionable government theft theft in employing a fiat monetary system which steals from you. Finally, a third book I would recommend, a, a book that explains how we view war as a nation, this concept of perpetual wars that we're involved in and why this has come about. And this is, I've quoted from him earlier today, Andrew Basevich. I don't agree with everything that he speaks of in his books, but his book 
Washington rules is incredibly important and incredibly enlightening. Andrew Basevich, Washington rules. Well, I appreciate your time listening to the things that I've offered today. And hopefully it was worth your time and it will cause you to think a little bit. And I will be back again shortly.